You're listening to the Regulatory Roundtable, a funds regulatory and compliance podcast brought to you by the global law firm Simpson Thatcher and ACA Group, a leading governance, risk, and compliance advisor. The Regulatory Roundtable offers insight from leading regulatory and enforcement lawyers and compliance specialists. We look forward to having you join us at the table. So welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining our debut session of what we're calling the Regulatory Roundtable podcast, which is brought to you by Simpson Thatcher and the ACA Group. So look, as we watch and witness the emergence of a very aggressive SEC that has a very skeptical view of PE, staying on top of those trends, staying abreast of what's happening at the SEC has never been more important from a compliance and reputational perspective. And that's the reason for this podcast. We want to help with just that process. We're going to bring you discussions with a rotating cast of players who have deep knowledge of the PE regulatory landscape. And we want to try and bring you behind the curtains on important policy, exam, and enforcement issues at the SEC. I'm Michael Osnato. I'm a partner at Simpson. I'm the head of our firm's Funds Regulatory and Investigations Group. And before joining Simpson, I spent about a decade at the SEC including in senior roles within the Enforcement Division. I'm joined today by my partner and friend, Mark Berger, who recently joined Simpson from the SEC, where he was most recently served as Acting Director and Deputy Director of Enforcement, and before that, running both the exam and enforcement programs at the SEC's New York office. We're also joined today by Allison Birnbach, our colleague and senior counsel in the private funds practice at Simpson, Allison, as many of you know, has over 20 years of very senior level experience guiding asset managers, both from the internal and external perspective on complicated compliance issues. And rounding out today's group, we have Rob Ingwer. Rob, as you know, is a principal consultant at ACA in their investment advisor business. Rob is a distinguished compliance executive with substantial experience guiding managers through difficult compliance and SEC regulatory issues. So, With that said, let me take you through what we want to do today. We want to first zoom out. We want to give you a big picture perspective on how SEC Chair Gary Gensler's views of the PE industry are going to shape the work of the SEC in the years to come. And then looking to Allison and Rob, we'll take a deep dive into what we're seeing day to day across many exams. So you have a very concrete sense of what's happening on the ground. So with that, with that framework in mind, let's just jump in and start the conversation, Mark. So, you know, as you know, Chair Gensler has been in his seat for about seven months. Every chair comes to the job with a set of his or her priorities, what matters most to them, what they want to get done. What's your assessment of the tone from Gensler? What are the things some folks should know about takeaways in the past few months? Yeah, Mike, I think the tone is exactly the one he set out to achieve, one of being aggressive. And, you know, if you think about it and you look to his prior role as chairman at the CFTC, it's not really that surprising as there he established and he oversaw an aggressive enforcement program and he was successful in increasing the overall enforcement profile of that agency. So, you know, you remember he led the investigative effort involving traders at large financial institutions concerning the manipulation of LIBOR. And we're already seeing some of these patterns repeat during his tenure at the SEC, sweeps of, you know, large financial institutions, for example. You know, what else are we seeing uh, at the SEC now? So I'd say 
in addition to a focus on macro issues involving market structure, particularly in the equity markets uh, in the wake of the market volatility earlier this year. The key areas that this administration has spoken the most about uh, have really been ESG and digital assets, uh, crypto. And, you know, while we really haven't seen much on the enforcement side with respect to ESG, we've certainly seen examinations focused on the topic. Whereas, you know, for crypto, (laughs) that's been pretty active both on the enforcement side um, and on the examination side. Thanks so much, Mark, for that big picture overview of what Gensler's saying and doing early on. So if we transition to private equity in particular and just think about state of play. So there's been congressional testimony. There's been bits and pieces where Chair Gensler has laid out some of his agenda in private equity. But just a week or so ago, early November, Gensler gave a pretty significant speech at the Institutional Limited Partner Association Summit, the ILPA Summit. And from the outside looking in, it looks like the speech was his really first concerted effort to put his stamp on the agenda in the PE industry. So take us through that. Did the speech tell us anything we didn't know? How should we be reacting to what he had to say? Yeah, it surely was a timely speech for this discussion, Mike. You're right about that. And um, it was his first focus on the private fund sector. And in it, you know, he touched on five themes, all of which broadly speaking, appear to reflect an institutional view that investors in private funds need more help from the SEC in obtaining transparency as to key aspects of their investments. And as you'll hear, some of these themes, you know, we've heard before. So let's take a quick, you know, tick through the five areas. Uh, First, fees and expenses. So he questioned whether investors have enough transparency concerning the range of fees and expenses advisors receive and whether they have full information to make informed investment decisions. And this seems clearly to be something that the chair and his staff have been studying. And he's actually asked for staff recommendations aimed at bringing greater transparency to fee arrangements, which he estimated total about $250 billion each year. The second area he highlighted as benefiting from increased transparency is arrangements that allow GPs to determine which LPs they're letting in and on which terms. So, you know, he focused on the use of side letters, which sometimes, as you know, involve the negotiation of preferred liquidity terms or disclosures and can lead to a disparity in investor fees. And in Chair Gensler's words, this can create an uneven playing field. And so again, here, he asked staff for recommendations regarding enhanced transparency and whether certain side letter provisions should not be permitted. Third, uh, he discussed performance metrics and specifically contrasted the performance information available in the mutual fund and private fund contexts. And so he's asked his staff to consider what can be done to enhance such transparency. Uh, Fourth on his list, uh, the use of waivers by GPs to modify or reduce their fiduciary obligations. And here, Mike, in a nutshell, he stressed that private fund advisors have a federal fiduciary duty under the Advisors Act that cannot be waived. And his last point, Mike, specifically citing the role of hedge funds in the March 2020 dysfunction in the Treasury market, he asked the SEC staff for recommendations for the Commission's consideration around enhancing reporting and disclosure through Form PF or other reforms, including whether more granular or timelier information would be useful. So, you know, we've got a pretty decent roadmap um, as to what's on their mind, Mike. And as I said, some familiar themes there. 
Yeah, so interesting, Mark. So, so as I listen, you know, when you see it all packaged together, it's obviously a pretty ambitious agenda. But, but again, as I'm listening to you, one thing occurs to me, right? And you know this. So, you know, when an SEC chair wants to give an important speech, right, he or she have effectively their pick of venue, right? Lots of people would be happy to host them. But I think we should read into the fact that Gensler chose ILPA, right, which, as we all know, is the is the major dominant LP lobbying group that's been out there in the market in Congress for years, basically lamenting, right, the lack of transparency in the PE market. So the choice of venue itself, I think, even as much as the words and the speech, send a pretty direct message to the sponsor community that this is a commission that thinks it needs to step in and help investors in their dealings with sponsors. And that's a pretty remarkable statement, given the way certainly prior SEC administrations have thought about sophistication in this market. So just switching gears for one sec, Mark, you know, and again, coming at this from the enforcement perspective, a lot of people saw the speech, read it, and think to themselves, the big open question is, should we read this speech to mean enforcement is waiting in the wings, that all of a sudden there's going to be a big ramping up of scrutiny. Is that, is that going to happen? Is that how you read the speech? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a question, Mike, on a lot of people's minds right now. And so, you know, the way I think about that, there's always and there will continue to be a constant pipeline of enforcement referrals from examination teams, for example, in the private funds unit of the Division of Examinations as well as throughout the regions from house examiners in you know, regional investment advisor, investment company exam programs. So adding on to that, you have personnel in the enforcement division's asset management unit, as well as enforcement attorneys throughout the division. Those folks are all building investigations based on large-scale data analytics, tips and complaints, and other types of referral sources. And so while wheels are moving in enforcement for sure, there is a possible silver lining here. You know, when you look to the language that Gary Gensler used in his ILPA speech, for example, he noted, I have asked staff to consider recommendations. And he's asked staff how we can better mitigate conflicts of interest. Those callings, when you think about them, they sound to me and probably to you as well, to be more along the lines of rulemaking and, and staff, you know, guidance instead of a mandate, you know, set out to his enforcement division. Yeah, excellent. I mean, very subtle point, but I think really important. So I think, Mark, we both know from prior experience that at the SEC and in the market, enforcement gets a lot of the airtime, right? Enforcement is in the headlines and the press releases. But as you know, right, from your role running the New York office, that in the blocking and tackling, the really important day-to-day work in PE gets done by the exam staff. So before we go to Rob and Allison to give us their sort of day-to-day perspective, just give us a big picture perspective of how you see the exam program today. Yeah, and and you're right in the setup to that question, right? Those are the folks that are out there in the field and they're on the front lines for sure. But, you know, what are the things that we're seeing? I'd say one of the things we're seeing is a return to more comprehensive exams, uh, looking at more areas and more extensive document request lists going on in connection with those exams. And so while risk-based focus exams are still occurring, the more comprehensive sort of A through Z exams have certainly come back. And, you know, some specifics there, what I mean, Mike, we've started to see the cover period for SEC exams extend up to five years. We've also now seen initial document request lists comprising over 90 items, as opposed to the sort of smaller 20 to 30 item list that we've seen in recent years. And much of this, even though I said these are the folks out in the field, 
I should note, because of the environment that we continue to operate in, it's actually still being done remotely by the exam teams. So fantastic. I think that's really excellent macro perspective for where we want to go next. And to do that, Rob and Allison, I'd really love it if you could begin to share your perspective, deep dive on what you're seeing counseling sponsors day to day dealing with exams. So over to you guys. Thanks, Mike, and appreciate that insight. So Allison, turning to you, you know, I think we can agree that during an exam, documentation production, specifically the ability to produce documents to the SEC in a timely fashion, is an important aspect of the exam process. Are you seeing any particular trends or changes when it comes to initial document request lists that clients are receiving? Rob, we are definitely observing some noticeable trends in regards to the initial document request and the initial stage of an exam review. To start, and, and, and Mark mentioned this, we're seeing pretty comprehensive initial request lists across the board. On average, about 30 to 40 initial requests. But as Mark mentioned, we're seeing even uh, more lengthy request lists initially. And in terms of the document production deadline for these initial requests, the turnaround time continues to remain fairly compressed. Generally, we're seeing 10 to 14 days for a turnaround on those document requests, notwithstanding the large number of requests. Perhaps this is an effort to continue to stress test firms. One trend we have observed recently is actually more cooperation by the staff in terms of a willingness to grant extensions as needed and allow productions on a rolling basis. Another notable observation we're seeing is the staff is reaching out pretty early on the schedule to follow up calls to discuss documents that are produced early on. So in the context of a rolling production, it's not unusual to have the staff reach out to discuss questions that they have on documents initially produced well before the rest of the documents are produced. In addition, we're not seeing as many of the three-hour-long initial calls that we had been seeing in the recent past, and we're not always seeing a request for a first-day presentation. Generally, what we are seeing is the staff ask for an initial call anticipated to last about an hour with an agenda of items they plan to discuss sent a few days ahead of that call. Rob, knowing that we're seeing pretty voluminous requests and a fairly compressed timeline for responding, do you have a set of practical steps and advice that you recommend to advisors to ensure that they're able to produce the requested documentation timely under such a short timeline? Absolutely. So I I think preparation is key. Being proactive in terms of identifying those areas of scrutiny Uh, determining who owns what documentation, where is the information maintained. For example, is the information housed in one particular system or does it need to be married in some shape or form? Uh, And how quickly the documents can be turned around. You know, typically policies and procedures or certain disclosure documents are easy, but many times financial documentation can take time to put together and produce. You know, so having these conversations with key internal stakeholders beforehand can really go a long way in just making the exam process a bit smoother. I couldn't agree more. I remind my clients regularly to have what I call the print and produce documents ready to go. Really the last thing that compliance teams wanna do is fumble around looking for documents that really should be on standby and ready to go at all times. Documents like fund documents, financial statements, final marketing decks, ADVs. Those really should be on the ready and identified who owns those and who should be able to produce those on on short order. Couldn't agree more, Allison. I mean, being proactive is key. 
So turning now to the substance of exams, can you talk a bit about any specific topics or themes that you're seeing the SEC request more frequently? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think there's a couple of, of themes or topics in which we're seeing increased scrutiny. First and foremost is around what we call value-added investors or operating partners or even senior advisors, really just depending on what the firm calls these relationships. And the SEC is focused in a number of key areas, right? Sufficient doc disclosure, uh, written policies and procedures highlighting the processes in place to monitor these relationships, uh, supporting documentation to evidence how the firm actually monitors and provides oversights of these relationships, uh, as well as compliance engagement, right? And I think this is a great way to connect back to, to the Ares case that came out uh, this year. And the case really highlighted the need for compliance to be really engaged and where necessary to take additional steps to mitigate a particular risk or conflict. I think the next topical area is a code of ethics reporting. So holdings and transactions uh, related to employee conduct, as well as uh, violation logs, and making sure that they are complete and up-to-date and fulsome. Uh, the last topic is, revolves around relationships with service providers. So the SEC, I think, is, in, is really focused and honing in on, on a couple of areas, including BCP concerns, obviously due to the pandemic and a firm's ability to operate effectively during what we've gone through over the last couple of years in a crisis situation, as well as MMPI concerns, right? For example, relationships with expert networks and alternative data providers. The SEC wants to see that advisors conduct some sort of initial due diligence as well as ongoing due diligence throughout the relationship. So... That being said, Allison, I want to switch gears a little bit, you know, from discussing maybe what we're seeing at the beginning of the exam process and maybe move towards the end. Are there any specific themes or trends that you're seeing related to the types of deficiencies that registrants are getting? We are. And, and one theme of deficiencies that we continue to see, and this is nothing new, are deficiencies around conflicts of interest, generally and across the board. However, we are seeing trends toward deficiencies around value-added investors and operating partners, and in particular, deficiencies around the adequacy of MNPI policies in terms of covering procedures for identifying value-added investors and enhanced processes around communications with those investors. Similarly, we're seeing deficiencies related to operating partners and in particular, MNPI policies and procedures for such individuals, whether they're treated as access persons under your code of ethics, themes around allocation of their time, and allocation of expenses related to their services. We're also seeing deficiencies on what we call sort of back to the basics, insufficient policies and procedures, the low-hanging fruit deficiencies, if you will failing to log gifts, entertainment, late code of ethics reporting and violations such as failure to pre-clear, late trading after a clearance has expired, custody violations, etc. We're also seeing um, deficiencies around MNPI and tracking engagements with public company officials. An increased focus again on the receipt of MNPI, how you use expert network and alternative data engagements as you as you mentioned earlier. Uh, support for procedures and monitoring expert networks and those engagements. And, you know, as a reminder, if, if firms have expert network policies, they really need to be sure they're complying with them. Taking this theme of pure policy and procedure violations, what you don't want to have are robust policies and procedures on the books, but they're not complied with. And 
Some firms will take the view that expert networks and use of that information is really low risk for them. However, it becomes high risk if you have policies that aren't being complied with. And during an exam, when the staff asks, oh, your policy says you log all your calls, you pre-clear all your calls, you chaperone you know, a, a subset of calls. Are you actually doing those things that your policies say you're doing? And can you prove that you're doing those things? So Rob, in, in our remaining time, perhaps you can highlight any other themes or topics you see trending with clients when it comes to particular deficiencies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, there's, there's, I think, a couple of uh, additional themes and topics I just want to highlight. So recidivism issues, repeat issues, you know, gaps, compliance issues identified during ongoing compliance monitoring, uh, annual reviews, right, it's internal testing that's being conducted, or mock examinations that fail to be remediated. The SEC wants to ensure that if you're identifying these gaps uh, or issues that you're working towards or taking some sort of action steps to mitigate the particular risk or issue, and they don't keep popping up. The second topic, it revolves around you know, insurance premiums, specifically director and insurance uh, officer insurance and the allocation of this expense. Uh, so back in May of 2021, there was a deficiency letter that came out of the Philadelphia office. And in this particular instance, the advisor allocated uh, the DNO insurance uh, 15% to the management company and, and 85% to, to the funds, which, as, as we both know, is, is on market, right? Anything sort of between 10 and 20%, we would, we would consider to be uh, on market. Anything below that from a percentage allocation perspective, we would consider kind of off market and would probably invite additional scrutiny. You know, the SEC cited the advisor stating that the funds offering docs did not adequately disclose that insurance premiums would be borne by the funds, including DNO insurance premiums. So I think this just sort of goes back to the fact that disclosure is, is absolutely key, but also, you know, making sure that uh, our clients understand that there are no sort of throwaway requests. There's no throwaway questions when it comes to an examination or even when we're working with clients. Uh, and we request this documentation. I think sometimes uh, clients will think ah, it's not really a high-risk area, not something that they need to really think about. But it does show that the SEC uh, is really focused and scrutinizing anything related to fees and expenses. That's a great point, Rob. And, and I think you, you said this, that it really comes down to your disclosure. So you can have what's market in terms of the actual allocation, but if your fund documents don't disclose that the fund will in fact bear a portion of that expense, you have a disclosure issue. And this goes back to you know, what we've seen time and time again in uh, exams and deficiencies. That's a great point. So we're coming to the end of our discussion, but let's make sure we tee up what we'll be turning to in our next installment of our regulatory podcast. And with that, Mike, I'll turn this back over to you. All right. So, Alice and Rob, th thanks so much. And, and all of our listeners, thank you as well. Been a really good discussion. So just to recap, right, you heard from Mark that Chair Gensler's first major speech on, on PE is based on a pretty skeptical view of the industry from the sponsor perspective. There's a view that major rulemaking is necessary and is something that we'll be looking for in 2022. And you've heard from the team that pace, scope of exams is ticked up. And all that, obviously, day-to-day -day, from the internal perspective at a sponsor creates risk. And so I think the big open question is whether 2022, as we look ahead, 
marks the big uptick in enforcement activity that a lot of us have been thinking is around the corner. And that's exactly what we're going to look to cover in our next session together. We're going to bring you through or take you up to speed on the state of play on the enforcement side. And what we really want to do is be practical. And so take a a deep dive into the art of managing tricky exams with the goal being avoiding the worst outcome, which is a referral to enforcement, give you tips, techniques, but also, you know, again, with Mark's perspective and insight, give you a big picture overview of how referrals behind the scenes get handled at the SEC. And then, you know, applying those rules of the road, we want to talk about the SEC's focus on ESG. And we'll do that again with a very clear, practical discussion for how to manage your investment program in a way that gives you high marks in the exam process and takes the risk of enforcement scrutiny off the table. So if anything we talked about today prompted a question, if there's a topic you'd like to hear us speak to, please reach out. We're more than happy to hear from you. You can get us at regulatoryroundtable at stblaw.com, or you can come visit the website, regulatoryroundtablepodcast.com. And you'll find a bunch of other resources there as well. So thanks so much for listening to us today. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Regulatory Roundtable. To hear about future episodes, be sure to follow the show in your favorite podcast app. To learn more about today's discussion or to reach out with questions or topics you would like to hear about on a future podcast, please contact us at regulatoryroundtable at stblaw.com or visit our website at regulatoryroundtablepodcast.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by Simpson Thatcher and ACA Group for general informational purposes only. Listeners should not consider the information available via this podcast to be an invitation for an attorney-client relationship, should not rely on the information provided during the podcast as legal advice for any purpose, and should always seek the legal advice of competent counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Listeners should not act or refrain from acting based on any information made available via this podcast, and Simpson Thatcher and ACA expressly disclaim all liability in respect of actions taken or not taken based on any contents of this podcast. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that Simpson Thatcher and ACA make no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of Simpson Thatcher or ACA Group.